All right, round two. Let's keep talking about this whole business of what is myth. Um, but now that we've read Tolkien's Mythopoeia, we should have a slightly new or improved view on exactly what that means. Um, and let me specify just from the start, if you got nothing out of this poem, that's fine. We're going to be talking about it here. Um, but I do want to stress that like we are going to be dealing with some fairly dense works in this class. Um, and while Tolkien is probably the densest, the poetic language and the poetic imagery that he uses, we will find again in Ovid and in Homer and elsewhere. Um, so get comfortable with parsing difficult, even extremely dense and poetic imagery. Um, it's not going to be the last time it happens in this class, though this is certainly like the worst it will ever get. Um, so if you didn't understand, fine, we're going to walk through it now. Um, like literally as far as I can go I will walk through it stanza by stanza with you um, so keep your copy of the poem open so we, you can see what I'm talking about and like get into the habit of picking out the details that I'm picking out here that said I'm not going to get everything like this is a fairly short poem it's probably the shortest reading in this entire class and I will spend an hour and 15 minutes talking about it and I will still not even scratch the surface of what all Tolkien is sort of referencing and dealing with here um, there are just so many illusions and the philosophy that he's working with is actually really really deep and profound um, there's a lot going on under the hood here um, so if you didn't pick it all out that's fine. If you picked out some of it, that's great. You're already ahead of the game. If you picked out nothing, don't worry. We'll get through as much as we can. Um, but I do want to talk about Tolkien's perspective in this particular poem and how it pertains to our whole discussion of what myth actually is. Um, specifically, I want to look at this from a perspective that most students and teachers of myth don't tend to look at the subject of myth from. I want to look at it from the perspective of the writer. Last week we talked about, well not last week, last lecture we talked about Plato and we talked about C.S. Lewis and both of them are approaching myth from the subject of the reader. Even though Plato does write some of his own myths and while like the, the role of the writer is bound up in that, um, he's not explicitly talking about it except insofar as it's being received. Lewis is looking at what are the indications that a myth is a myth based on how it is read, how we appreciate it, how we approach it, how it sticks with us. For Plato, he's dealing with the consequences. The people who read myth will see the following things happen, so therefore we need to tell good myths in order that the effects of these myths are also good. But Tolkien is very interested in the business of writing myth. Um, and there are elements to the readership, sure, but he is sort of uniquely positioned in our age to talk about this particular dimension of how myth works. And he is a scholar of myth in his own right, like he was a philologist, which once upon a time was like both a, semant or a semiotics and linguists or linguistics expert. Um, philology is kind of a lost art in its own right and has sort of been broken down, at least in America, into its sort of child disciplines. Um, but we're not going to get too deep into that. What's important for us is that Tolkien was also a writer of myth. He was a student of myth, he studied myth extensively, and he also wrote myth. This is the same Tolkien, the same J.R.R. Tolkien, who gave us The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, and a wide variety of other myths that you probably have not encountered 
uh, coming into this class. Um, so if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, congratulations. Here is some more of that, only I imagine that it's very different from what you encountered in the other works. And if you were only familiar with the movies, well, strap in, because things are going to get wildly different here. Um, now, if you are interested in reading more Tolkien, I can definitely recommend you to Professor Gill. I believe that he is teaching, he teaches his Tolkien class every couple of years, I think. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Hang around the humanities department because the rumor tends to get out pretty quick and that class fills up very quickly. Um, but I am also a Tolkien fan and amateur Tolkien scholar in my own right. Um, and I definitely value his opinion, especially as it's presented here. Um, on how myth works but enough you know fanfare let's dive in and by dive in i mean let's dive into the po the prescript the little epitaph there um to one who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless even though breathed through silver philomathus to misomathus now this actually has some story behind it um you probably, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were actually really close friends. This is the very same C.S. Lewis who wrote The Experiment in Criticism we talked about last time. This is the very same C.S. Lewis who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. The very same C.S. Lewis who wrote Mere Christianity and became a major Christian apologist. That's C.S. Lewis. Tolkien and Lewis were both studying at Oxford at the same time. Um, they were part of a group of variously talented um, writers and scholars known as the Inklings. Um, and Lewis and Tolkien were especially close in this particular group. Um, now Lewis, when Tolkien met him, was an atheist. In fact, Lewis had gone to seminary for a little while and basically flunked out because he just couldn't buy it. He had a very logical, very penetrating mind um, and he wasn't going to buy into all this god crap. Um, and as the little tidbit here suggests, Lewis had suggested to Tolkien that myths were lies breathed through silver, which is a fairly unkind way to describe myth, but let's give Lewis the benefit of the doubt and see how Tolkien sort of defends myth in this poem. But also notice the names here, Philomathus and Misomathus, Philomythus and Misomythus. Um, these are basically weird Greek terms that, that Tolkien has created for his purposes. Um, philo and miso are the Greek words for love and hate. You're probably familiar with these as they appear in American names, like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, um, Delphi is city, Philo is brotherly love. Um, meanwhile, Miso is the um, is the sort of like prefix that means to hate something. So if you think of the word misogynous, that is miso, hatred of gyno or gyne, which is woman. So a misogynist is somebody who hates women. Um, so the suggestion here, philomythus to misomythus, is the lover of myth writing to the hater of myth. Um, and we'll see more of, Tol of Lewis's perspective as Tolkien sort of addresses it through the course of this poem. Um, but this is very much Tolkien's response to a conversation that Lewis, or letter that Lewis had written, in which he basically said that he thought myths were worthless, lies breathed through silver. And notice the connotations of that phrase, lies breathed through silver. Um, 
like Plato, there's an insinuation that by breathing a lie through silver, you are making the lie more palatable, more desirable. You are deceiving people in a way that is malicious or pernicious. Um, a lie breathed through silver is more convincing and more flattering than a normal lie, um, which suggests that a myth is, if anything, more dangerous than a straight-out lie, um, as far as Lewis is talking about it here. But Tolkien's attitude is very different. Um, so let's look at the poem, starting from the very first stanza. You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are, quote, trees, and growing is, quote, to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space, a star's a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical, amid the regimented, cold, inane, where destined atoms are each moment slain. Now, this is Tolkien presenting Lewis's perspective back at him. This is a mirror stanza, a, what, Lewis, what Lewis presents and what Tolkien is confronting in this poem. And notice what Tolkien emphasizes about Lewis's perspective here. You look at trees and label them just so. The idea is that Lewis propounds to be able to look at a tree and call a tree a tree. No fancy terms, no fancy myth. He doesn't need to explain like there's a tree spirit or there's a dryad or something else fancy. No, it's a tree. That's all it is. Hence why Tolkien follows up, for trees are, quote, trees and growing is, quote, to grow. The words match the thing in this case, according to Lewis's perspective as it is represented by Tolkien. But notice where Tolkien goes from this. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. What he is stressing, what he is representing Lewis is arguing, is that we on earth are just one tiny part of the grand cosmic system. One minor globe of space. And notice the capitalization there, capital S in space. We'll come back to that because Tolkien uses a lot of sneaky capitals in here. Um, in fact, he's got another one later in this stanza. But notice the emphasis. It's just one of many minor globes. There's nothing special about the Earth, unlike what so many myths tell us. For the Greeks, for the Babylonians, for the Romans, for the Norse, Earth has this privileged position. It is, if not the center of the universe, then it is a critical part of the universe. Um, instead, what Lewis is saying is, this is just one of many planets, inconsequential, unimportant. As Tolkien emphasizes, a star's a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented, cold, inane. What Tolkien is emphasizing is that this is a dead world. A star is a star, as Lewis says, of a tree is a tree, growing is to grow, but also it's just matter in a ball. There's nothing special about a star. It's not a person. It doesn't have some spiritual significance. It doesn't have a soul the way that like the Greeks like to portray Helios, the sun god, as having a soul, or how so many myths surround the sun as a deity in his own right. Um, a star is just a star, compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented cold inane. Stars don't have some sort of livelihood. They don't have a personality. They don't choose where they go. They are bound by cold regimented mathematics 
to travel across the universe in very specific patterns. And notice that capitalized word here, inane. Inane means there is, it's senseless, it is pointless, it is both tedious and boring as well as pointless and senseless and stupid. Um, inane is frequently what you call a stupid person or a stupid argument. It doesn't make sense. This whole regimented system, the movement of the stars, the sun itself, are just chunks of matter moving through space according to predetermined mathematical pointless directions. And where he concludes is where destined atoms are each moment slain. That same matter which makes up the sun and the planets and so on and so forth, those atoms are destined. They do not have will, they do not have choice, there is no volition, and they are pointlessly slain, killed, destroyed. This is a universe that Lewis is presenting to Tolkien and that Tolkien is reflecting back at him that has no sense to it. It is pointless, but mathematical. It is cold. It is impersonal. It is unimportant. Every rock is equal to every other piece of matter. No atoms have precedence. This is what Tolkien understands as the scientific view of the universe, a view where all atoms are equally significant and equally insignificant, where everything that happens is just a pure business of mathematics, where there is no predestination except in so far as that is mathematical predestination, not directed, but just dumbly going about its patterns. But notice the way that he changes this in the second stanza. At bidding of a capital W will, to which we bend and must, but only dimly apprehend. Great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals. And as on page or written without clue, with script and limning packed of various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien except his kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. Now, on the one hand, the transition seems to suggest that he's just adding more. He's just adding more to what Lewis has already presented. Here is this brute, pointless, inane universe with all of its matter just doing what matter does, but now it is at bidding of a will. And that will, you'll notice, is capitalized. There is a suggestion of personhood behind it. Where, where Lewis's world is empty, where the two capitalized words are space and inane, now we have a will. We have something governing this universe. We bend to that will and must, but only dimly apprehend these great processes marching on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals. By contrast to Lewis's understanding of the universe where there is no purpose, where everything is pointless and dumb and meaningless, now Tolkien contrasts that this universe, this pointlessness, is itself directed. The supposed mathematical pointlessness is at bidding of a will. This senseless destruction of matter, where destined atoms are each moment slain, at bidding of a will. The necessity that Lewis sees, the fact that we are all destined to these courses, compelled implies a will. 
The very fact that science abides by laws, functions according to rules, is for Tolkien an indication that those rules were made, that these rules were set down by some purposed and purpose of a being. And if it isn't obvious, what we're talking about here is God. That's why he capitalizes W in will. The will is the will of God. That's why he capitalizes the O in origo for origin, because that is also God. But notice what he's emphasizing here. It looks pointless. It seems senseless. It, to all appearances, is cold, inane, mathematical, regimented. But the very orderliness of all this implies that there is an orderer, a maker, a creator, a will that has bent the universe into this shape. We'll come back to this, so hold any thoughts you may have about this. We only dimly, dimly apprehend the purposes of this will, though. These great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals. Notice the emphasis, dark beginnings and uncertain goals. We don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going, but we know that we're going to get there according to these regimentations, these rules. And as on page, or written without clue, with script and limning packed of various hues, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien. In the process of this apparently meaningless existence, Tolkien is emphasizing that there is an abundance of creativity on display. As much as we may stress that like all atoms are the same in the view of science, what Tolkien is stressing is, even if that's the case, atoms make some really interesting stuff. Grim, frail, beautiful, queer, alien forms. Except as kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. All of these things. The gnat, the man, the stone, the sun, the animals, the plants, the various planets that we run into, each star with its particular color, the various stuff we find floating around in space, the stuff that we find in the oceans, and the stuff that we find in the air. All of these things, supposedly brute, pointless, inane matter, are themselves in this endless multitude of forms. As on page or written without clue with script and limning packed of various hue, what he is emphasizing is not the emptiness of the universe, as he does when he's talking from Lewis per Lewis's perspective, but instead the fullness of the universe. If there is a senselessness here, it is a senselessness of creation. Why are there so many different things? If the universe is so cold and mathematical, so regimented, so inane, why is there so much diversity in the actual stuff that we see around us? Why are there butterflies and cows and dogs and platypuses and blue whales and sharks and albatrosses and who even knows? Why are there so many different kinds of insects? Why are there human beings at all if the universe is this empty mathematical thing? 
God made the petrius rocks, the arboreal trees, Tellurian earth, and stellar stars, and these homuncular men who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle, touched by light and sound. The movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large, slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dent. Now, there is a lot to unpack here. First off, notice he is not going to be coy anymore. God made the rocks, the trees, the earth, the stars, the men, and everything else. Now, Tolkien was a hardcore Christian. You may not know that if you were familiar with his fantasy work, but he was very, very Catholic, super Catholic, as my Boston College friends would used to say. Um, he absolutely 100% believed in the teaching of the Catholic Church, and he knew it, like he knew it cold. He was not one of those lapsed Catholics who sort of just only shows up twice a year, if that. He was a Catholic who committed his life to understanding his own faith and to living it out. He saw it in everything around him. And if you were looking for Catholicism in Lord of the Rings, you will find it. You will find it all over the freaking place. Um, but that's another conversation for another day or another class entirely. What I want to stress here is that Tolkien is basically presenting a case for God to Lewis. He is saying, here is your universe, your orderly but pointless universe. Where did it come from? Why does it have all this stuff in it? Why is it so complicated? How, why is everything moving in this predestined mathematical way unless it was directed and directed by a will, the will of God? Why are there all of these different forms, but why are these forms united in some way? As he stresses, except as kin from one remote origo, Nat, Man, Stone, and Sun. In some sense, these are all different, wildly diverse things, but in another sense, they also show a unity of purpose for Tolkien. And now, I admit, you can absolutely take or leave Tolkien's Christianity. We are going to get deep into it in our discussion today, because it's unavoidable. Um, but it is not necessary to appreciate what Tolkien is saying about myth to buy into his Christianity. It is important to see what his Christianity is saying about the business of making myth. So notice what he stresses here in the second half of the stanza. God made all these things, but he is also stressing the details, the strange beauty of these things. Not just the Tellurian earth and stellar stars, these things that are themselves given this mystical, supernatural quality, but also the movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large, slow oddity of cows. He's emphasizing the strangeness of the universe. The fact that it was orderly was emphasized by Lewis. The fact that it is unusual and weird is emphasized by Tolkien. Why are cows so slow and so odd? Why does slime crawl up from mud to live and die? And most importantly, at the end of the stanza, these each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dint. Whether or not you buy into the whole divine project that, that Tolkien is pointing to here, what he is stressing, for sure, is that we give these things meaning. The original assumption of Lewis is that the universe is inane, mathematical, regimented, pointless. 
But what Tolkien stresses is that each of these wild, crazy, diverse things that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives or in all of human experience and exploration, each of these things print the brain's contortions with a separate dent. They give us a new idea. We have a file for platypuses and gnats and stones and albatrosses and blue whales and hammerhead sharks and you know, three-toed sloths. Like, we have a way of attributing meaning to each of these things, with or without God. So he goes on, yet trees, and not, quote, trees, until so named and seen, and never were so named till those had been whose speeches involuted breath unfurled, faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, Response of those that felt a stir within by deep munition, movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars, free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Great powers they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backward they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind and light and dark on secret looms entwined. Tolkien argued that each of the things that we encounter we print on the brain with a separate dent. But notice that these names that Lewis stressed at the beginning, trees are just trees, to grow is to grow, Tolkien now stresses that's not calling a spade a spade. That's not how language works. Tolkien was very familiar with the way that language works. That's what he studied all the time. He knew all of these etymologies. He helped contribute to the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary. Like, he understood where language comes from, where these names come from. And what he is stressing is that a tree is not a tree until we call it that. Trees and not trees until so named and seen, and never were so named, we would not have given it that name, except that those who created the name saw something more than just an image. Neither record nor a photograph being divination, judgment, and a laugh. We call a tree a tree not because it is some, like, index that we are using. We call a tree a tree because of the myth that told us what a tree is. It is divination. We call a tree a tree because we assign personhood to it. We assign thingness to it. We assign some ineffable quality to a tree that makes it more than just something that imprints its image on our retinas. It is also a judgment. We give it a name because we are implicitly pronouncing upon it certain qualities. We are saying that a tree is tall, or we are saying that a tree is good, or we are saying that a tree is meaningful in some way in a way completely opposed to the empty universe that Lewis was talking about initially. But it's also a laugh. It's also a joke. There's something silly about it. There's something whimsical and unpredictable about it. But notice why we do this. This is neither record nor photograph. It's a divination, a judgment, and a laugh. It is not a one-to-one -one account of what we are encountering. We are already imposing meaning on the universe that you call meaningless. You cannot call a tree a tree until we name it and make it meaningful. It isn't a tree, except insofar as a tree is something bigger than whatever the object you look out the window and see actually is. But notice that why. 
response of those that felt a stir within by deep monition movements that were kin to life and death of trees of beasts of stars the name tree is not just like this is this picture that i see i call it a tree no the name includes the whole life cycle of the tree the fact that it grows from this tiny little acorn and becomes a sapling a sapling that needs to be protected from outside sources and animals a sapling that will given a chance grow into this massive wonderful thing but that wonderful thing still is in danger and one day that lightning is going to come down and break it in two and it will be dead gone from the world forever the whole of human experience is bound up in this name is what tolkien is suggesting we call it a tree but in that name is not just like the scientific object this is not like the latin fancy term this is not some overly precise nomenclature this is a nomenclature that is by its very nature mythic it expresses not just the tree as we see it but the tree as it is in itself the tree as it grows, the tree as it is born, the tree as it dies, the tree as it reproduces, the tree as it strives for sunlight, this tree as it blows in the wind, the tree as it moves according to the way that the wind is blowing. All of that is there. It's not just a tree. It was never just a tree. The only reason we can call it a tree is because we have already given it such spiritual depth that it is bound up with the way that we understand everything. We are free captives, undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Given our senses alone, we would just be able to see these pictures, these illuminations, the projections of trees on our retina, or the projections of grass, or the projections of rocks, they would have no greater meaning. But what Tolkien is emphasizing is by giving it meaning, by giving it a name, a word, we give it meaning as well. We pan spirit out of sense. And maybe it is inappropriate from the perspective of science. It doesn't matter. Science can't talk about a tree except insofar as that tree is already bound up with the myths of the name tree. It's unavoidable. For Lewis, the, the universe may be dead, inane, but for Tolkien, every word we speak, the only way that we can understand or apprehend or even approach the world of sense is through the means of spirit and vice versa we see the tree and we see spiritual meaning in it but also in trying to name the tree we use our spiritual experience to explore what it is and this goes farther than that as the last of the stanza expresses great powers they slowly brought out of themselves and looking backward they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind and light and dark on secret looms entwined this is more than just naming trees this is about the entire experience of assigning meaning to the universe we see the tree and we ask ourselves where did it come from Sure, we get the seed, the life cycle, life to death, you know, rebirth and reproduction, and all of that is bound up into it. But then we ask, okay, why? Where did that come from? And our answer, the elves made it, or the gods made it. Great powers that we bring out of ourselves 
make these things, wrought them on cunning forges of the mind, and light and dark on secret looms entwined. We can only understand the whole picture of what a tree or what any object is by placing it in this entire mythic framework, by understanding its role in the entire universe around us. And that universe is filled with meaning. Meaning that may come from ourselves rather than meaning found in those things, but meaning nonetheless. We may have invented those great powers that Tolkien talks about, as well as the elves that are right, like creating things in the past, but nonetheless, meaning is implanted into it. It is inescapable, unavoidable. We cannot look at a tree and not on some level appreciate this. So he stresses, he sees no stars who does not see them first of living silver made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath the ancient song whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The names that we have chosen, be they stars, be they the firmament or the air, the sky, or the earth, all are rooted in myth, in these stories, in this spiritual significance that we have given to these things. The sky, this firmament that the Latins frequently talk about, is a word specifically talking about the space between like the stars and our earth, a space populated with spirits, a space filled with life and spiritual significance, created or invented or brought up or begotten, we assign it that meaning. It's bound up in the way that we talk about the word sky or firmament or air. The only alternative is what he says, a void. The only alternative to that void, to an emptiness, to a pure meaninglessness like what Lewis seems to be aspiring to. Sky is not a thing, only void, unless it is a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned. If you're going to talk about a sky in some scientifically empty sense, you can't talk about a sky. Because sky is bound up with that jeweled tent, that image of a thing covering us, protecting us, something that has been devised and created. For the Greeks, the stars are hung in the sky as constellations, as reminders of great heroes and great deeds, or to protect people. Um, that's what stars are. And you can't avoid that. Likewise, when we talk about Earth, there are so many myths of the Earth being something feminine, something abundant, something fertile, something that gives birth to all the things that live upon her. And so Tolkien stresses, you don't get to call it Earth unless it is also the mother's womb whence all have birth. We all come from this place. The spiritual meaning is implicit in the very words we use to describe our experience. There's no way to avoid it. Even when science describes these things, we will impose our spiritual meanings on them. The spiritual meaning and the word itself cannot be divorced from one another. But for Tolkien, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him. 
Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light and sow the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. Now, if anything, we have even more to unpack here. And this is where this is going to get heavy-duty theological, so bear with me for now, because this will have major repercussions when we start talking about Christianity down the road as well. Um, keep this in mind. But notice what how Tolkien describes the way that this relationship, our relationship of giving meaning to the universe, works. First, he stresses it's not lies. Like us giving spiritual significance to the earth, the sky, the trees, the stars, that's not a deception. That is not something wrong that we are doing. We are not misbehaving. We are not misusing language in this way. Or if we are, it's different. Instead, what we are doing is drawing wisdom from the only capital W wise. And once again, we're talking about God here. We are, for Tolkien, seeing God in the universe around us, which is a very biblical concept. Like, this is the concept of natural revelation as it's described in Romans and as it's been talked about for the thousands of years since then. The idea here is that God puts his mark on everything that we see. Anyone who lives in the world for any length of time should be able to fully appreciate that there is a God who is watching over them and providing all of this stuff for us. Um, and therefore, for us to see spiritual meaning in the world around us is wisdom. It is wisdom drawn from the only source of wisdom, from God. And it recalls God. Now, the relationship to God is complicated. And again, this is heavily theological. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. This is a reference to the fall of man. Christian theology holds that all of the bad things that happen in the universe, all of the bad things that humans do, and all of the things that are bad that happen to people, are the result of the fall. Um, this is the story of Adam and Eve. Like, Adam and Eve are hanging around the garden, they're having a good time, but they are given one major prohibition. God says, hey, you can hang out, you can do whatever you want, but do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, because Adam and Eve can't have nice things, they eat from the tree. And immediately they fall, and there are all these bad things that happen. Importantly for our purposes, they lose dominion over the world. Or rather, they lose authority over the world. They still rule, but they are now ruling in a broken way. So notice the way that he describes this. We are estranged from the wise. We are, are now distanced from God. There is a separation between us due to this disobedience, due to this fall. But man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. The fall did not completely corrupt us. We are not completely lost. We are not completely divorced from God. But we are 
divorced. We are estranged. We are far away, but not impossibly far away. And importantly for Tolkien, we still retain our prerogatives. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act. What Tolkien is suggesting here, and this is actually some theological innovation on the part of Tolkien, which he himself was kind of, you know, reluctant to. He is definitely doing his own little theological workhouse, though calling it innovation is probably unfair. This is fairly standard Catholic interpretation, just interpreted in a new way. Um, what he is saying is that human beings in the fall have been distanced from God, yes, granted, but also they have retained their lordship over the world, their dominion. Disgraced he may be, but not dethroned. We still rule over this world. And while our rule is not as absolute as it was under God, where everything was orderly and all the animals like obeyed us for sure, and we didn't have to worry about like the land not producing food and stuff like that, now we are still in the position of ruling, but the land doesn't obey us the way it used to. Still we keep the rags of lordship once we owned, and we dominate the world, you'll note, by creative act. What this means for Tolkien is that we still rule, we are still the lords of this world, as proclaimed by God in Genesis. When God creates human beings, he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. All of the animals, all of the land, it is all yours. I am giving it to you. You have dominion. And that doesn't stop when we screw things up and fall from grace. When Adam and Eve screw it up, they are still the lords of the universe. It's just that the universe is no longer going to behave anymore. But we retain the rags of lordship and we express it through the creative act. Now notice this passage, because this is one of the most important images in this whole poem. It is not his, humankind's, not ours, to worship the great artifact. We do not worship the world, the stuff that things are made of. Rather, we, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Our creative act is the way that we express our dominion over the world in this fallen time. But importantly for Tolkien, this creative act is not something divorced from who God is. God created the universe. And we, as a created thing, as the thing with dominion, as a being with the image of God, also create. It is our responsibility to create. It is how we express our lordship over the universe is by creating. And you can take this in the more scientific and technological sense and talk about like how we're going to subjugate the earth and we're going to like build dams at waterfalls and we're going to you know, take the metals and turn them into fancy new technology, airplanes and so on and so forth. We're going to conquer the seas and we're going to fish and we're going to you know, hunt and we're going to do all the things that make society society. That's part of it. But more than that, remember, Tolkien's been talking about nomenclature, names this entire time. We have been given domination over this world and we are going to express it by understanding it, 
by giving names to things, by expressing our domination through accept through expressing our thoughts, by giving spiritual meaning to everything that is not spiritual in the universe, we are doing what we were designed to do. But more than that, look at that image. The refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Once again, the white, the capital W there, is a good indication that we're talking about God as the single white. But notice the way that this works. He's talking about light. White light is light that contains all the other colors. You put it through a prism and it makes a rainbow. But what Tolkien is stressing is that our responsibility as sub-creator is to take the unrefracted white light of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the spiritual significance that is inherent in the world as God laid it down, and to break it into lots and lots of different colors, and then combine those colors. The creative act for Tolkien is not something truly inventive. And in fact, philosophers have been talking about this for ages. Like, I teach Descartes in my philosophy classes, and I stress, because Descartes observes, we never create something ex nihilo, from nothing. We cannot, like, create something from absolutely nothing whatsoever. What we do is we combine stuff that we have experienced in new and interesting ways. Tolkien himself says in a different essay that the creative act is tantamount to saying, okay, so I know what a sun is, and I know what the color green is, but now it's creative if I say, and there was a green sun. This is something that is not created from nothing. We already know what a sun and what green are. But now that we are recombining them, now that we are putting together the pieces we have been given in new and interesting ways, that's our not just right, but our responsibility. That is what we as human beings have been put on this earth to do by God. God, the great creator, the single white light, has given the world to us, the sub-creators, to refract that light into a bunch of different colors, which we will then combine in a bunch of different ways. That's creativity, and that's dominion. That's how we express our control of the world, by giving it that meaning and by combining things in new ways. Through all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light and sow the seed of dragons, twas our right, used or misused. Tolkien is saying that all of our stories, all of our myths, they are our right to make. It's our world. We tell what stories about it that we will. If we want to put goblins in the mountains, then we will put goblins in the mountains. If we want to put elves in the lush, fertile valleys, then we will put elves in those valleys. If we are going to take, you know, the mountaintops so far away that we can't reach them and put gods there, that's ours to do as well, even though it's against God's purposes, even though it's idolatrous. If we want to say that there are dragons hanging around, or if we want to sow the seed of dragons, which could at the same time mean, like, say that there are dragons all over the place and they're, like, growing and reproducing. But also, as the Greek myths will frequently emphasize, if we want to say that, these, that dragons' teeth grew into human beings, that's our right. That is our prerogative. We are expressing ourselves by taking the world and making it look in our image by recombining all of the elements that we run into, by giving things meaning. 
And note the parenthetical here. It's used or misused. We do misuse this right. Again, Tolkien's a hardcore Christian. Pagan writers like the Greeks were essentially messing up God's plan. They were creating gods, and they shouldn't have. That wasn't what they were supposed to do with it. That is a misuse of our right, but it is still our right. We can create whatever we want in this world. If we do it right, if we are refracting the white light instead of trying to like build up things that offend that light, then we should be following God's law and we should be creating in his line. But that doesn't mean that we were out of step to do it. It is our right to create, to make the world mean something. As he says, we make still by the law in which we're made. As made things, as things possessing the image of God, it is our right and our responsibility to make the world in our image, to make it according to the way that we want to see it, to recombine all of the things that we have been given by God in order to make it more conducive to us. And so he goes on, Yes, wish-fulfillment dreams we spin to cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish? And whence the power to dream? Or some things fair or, ugly, or others ugly deem? All wishes are not idle. Not in vain fulfillment we devise. For pain is pain, not to, for itself to be desired, but ill. Or else to strive or to subdue the will alike were graceless, and of evil this alone is dead dreadly certain evil is. Now, the suggestion here is that Lewis probably said that myths were wish fulfillments. And this is a fairly common critique you're going to hear. You know, if you talk to atheists from a Christian perspective, or if you see atheists and Christians disagreeing, one of the common, con one of the common disagreements they will have, one of the common accusations that an atheist will accuse Christians of doing is doing wish fulfillment. You want there to be meaning in the universe. You want there to be a God out there watching over you so you, your lives will have meaning. You are too afraid to accept that the world is brute and ugly and doesn't care and is inane and pointless and that you were just dirt acting up and uh, nothing you do matters. This is what atheists will frequently accuse. This is likely what Lewis accused Tolkien of doing. But notice how Tolkien reframes this. Yes, it is wish-fulfillment dreams. But here is the secondary question. Where did this wish come from? Where did, why do we have the power to wish or to dream? Why do we have the power to decide whether some things are fair and others are ugly? Why some are good and some are bad? Where did this discerning power come from if the world is in fact as meaningless as you say? Why do we think that there are good and bad things in the universe? So yes, we are spinning wish fulfillment dreams. Where do you think we got the ability or the inclination to do that from? From God. You can't just see evolution producing beings that for some reason com are compelled to seek for something more. What would be the evolutionary point of that is what Tolkien's arguing. And again, you can push back on this. But even if you do, I think Tolkien's point holds pretty strongly. Namely, where, why do we still wish? Why do we still dream? Why do we still try to fix the world? And more importantly, is it bad to want that? 
All wishes are not idle, not in vain. Fulfillment we devise. We make wishes because we want to fix things. We come up with wishes because we want to make the world better than it is. If we were forced, according to the scientific perspective, just sit and accept the world as it is, that would suck. Instead, we should wish. We should dream. We should want better. For pain is pain. Not in itself to be desired, but ill. Pain sucks. I don't care how scientific you want to be. I don't care whether you call it unavoidable or what. We want to avoid it because it sucks. Not just like physical pain, like I have injured myself, but also spiritual, deep emotional pain. Pain of loneliness. Pain of being distant from good things. Pain of the world not being the way that we want it to. Pain of death and pain of loss and pain of grief. That sucks. And we're not wrong to want something different. In fact, if you insist, accept it. If you sit and say, no, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is only pain, well then what good is that? What good are you? What good is that argument? How true is your statement that pain is unavoidable when you can and should seek to avoid pain? Like, it's the most basic thing that we know instinctively. It's not even something we need to be taught. You burn your hand on the oven, you quit putting your hand on the oven. It's that simple. The answer is not, well, I guess that's just what happens. I guess I'll put my hand on the oven anyway, because pain is inevitable. What the, like, what even is that? What, how is that even sensible? And notice his conclusion. Pain is pain, not for itself to be desired, but ill, or else to strive or to subdue the will alike were graceless. And of evil, this alone is deadly certain. Evil is. And notice the capital here. The suggestion is not that this is God, but this is the profound spiritual evil, a force opposed to everything that God represents. And it too is unavoidable. But what Tolkien emphasizes is if it's unavoidable, it's all the more reason to fight it. We can't win, maybe. But who cares? Because it still sucks, and you still should fight it. Of evil, this alone is dreadly certain evil is. So we fight. So we wish. So we dream. So we invent all of our spiritual understandings of the universe. So we make space in the world for weird and wonderful things to happen. So we understand the world in a way that is positive and optimistic and just generous to ourselves. What is wrong with that? Why is this a bad thing? Because there are bad things out there. And those bad things suck. And it is not wrong to say that they suck and to want to avoid them. So blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley, and in guarded room, through small, though small and bare, upon a clumsy loom, weave rishus gild, gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow sway. The solution to evil is not acceptance. Oh well, that's just the way the universe is. The solution is to fight back. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, the quail in its shadow, because again, it's unavoidable. You can't fight some of these evils. They're too big for us. And yet shut the gate. Refuse to let them take over. Refuse to succumb and become evil ourselves. 
we seek no parley, and in a guarded room, though small and bare, upon a clumsy loom, we write our stories. We weave our issues, gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow sway. Are you really going to tell me that hope is wrong? That when we live in a world as dark as ours, and Jesus, it has gotten dark lately. Like, forget Tolkien for a minute. He lived through freaking World War I and World War II, so he certainly has his own body of experience to draw from. But look around. Is the solution really to throw up our hands and say, Oh, fuck it, I guess we're all just going to die. I guess our political differences are completely, like, unconquerable, and now we're all just going to disagree with each other, and we're all going to hate each other, and we're all going to die of COVID, and oh well, what are you going to do? No, you fight. You take the steps you can. Evil is not inevitable in the sense that everyone has to succumb to it. Evil is something you fight. You close the gate against it. Evil is. And so we fight. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wrath, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. What will cause us to overcome this evil is not acceptance of it. What will cause us to overcome is hope for something better. If your life sucks right now, I imagine you've spent a fair amount of time over the last eight months thinking about better times. Maybe old days when you used to be able to go to movies in peace, or when you used to be able to hang out with friends in large groups without worrying about transmitting a virus. Or maybe you were thinking about, like, businesses that used to be open and aren't now, or money you used to make that you don't now, or a time when you could attend a class in person and not have to listen to your professor lecture on the, like, recording that he made a week or two ago. Who knows? But if we're going to make it better, if we're going to fix this evil, then it's, we have to start by hoping. If you just give up, we don't fix it. And so, hopes, dreams, are crucial to our survival as a species. We have to hope. We have to dream. We have to bestow that spiritual significance on the world around us so we can differentiate this is evil and this is good and this is what we want to avoid and this is what we want to achieve. This is what we need to despise and reject, and I need everyone around me to reject it as well. And this I want to adopt and accept, and I want everyone around me to adopt and accept it as well. We need to keep that fight going. And in order to keep that fight going, we need to tell these stories. We need to conjure up these hopes, these lies breathed through silver. But they are not lies because evil is real, and this is the only way that you fight back. Maybe it isn't as true as scientific data, but it is truer in a greater sense. It is what, for Tolkien, God wants us to do. Meaning is unavoidable. It is in the very language we use to describe the world around us. And if you reject that, if you just say there is nothing, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, what you are basically saying is, I accept evil. It is, and it conquers, and there is no point in arguing. There's every point in arguing. How many evils have we overcome because we dreamed, because we hoped, because we looked forward to an invented time that didn't exist yet, but might? 
And now we live in a world full of skyscrapers and steel accomplishments, and we have conquered the Black Plague and the smallpox and any number of things that plagued our species in hundreds of years past. We did that because we dreamt, because we hoped, because we imagined a future where the world could be better, and that future turned out to be more than a myth. And the first stage in that process is to make the myth. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things nor found within record, recorded time. It is not that they have forgot the night or bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss forswearing souls to gain a Circe kiss and counterfeit at that machine produced bogus seduction of the twice seduced. Such isles they saw afar and ones more fair and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat and yet they would not in despair retreat but oft to victory have turned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen what tolkien is stressing here is that these myths the christian faith the things that people accuse of being pure wish fulfillment are on the one hand important in order to have you know, fulfilled wishes, you have to first have wishes. In order to make the world better, you have to first imagine that it could be. But also, this business of making myths is not about, you know, sitting on our butts and not caring about the actual state of the world. It is not about ignoring the plight of the world around us. Rather, it is done in full acknowledgement that the world does, in fact, suck. The legend makers, with their rhyme, did not forget the night or f bid us flee to organize delight. They did not say, you know, there isn't evil in the world. No, they were, if anything, emphasizing it. And their solution was not, oh, just ignore it and go get drunk. No, their solution was, I see a world that is better. Come with me. And that's how you get stuff done. But notice also how Tolkien expresses this drunkenness. It is not that they have forgot the night or bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss. For swearing souls to gain a Circe kiss and counterfeit at that machine produced bogus seduction of the twice seduced. This is not just an idle metaphor. Now the lotus isles is a reference to the Odyssey. On the Isles of the Lotus Eaters, Odysseus and his crew land and they find that there are all these dudes and they're eating lotus and when they eat lotus they forget about home. Instead they just sit and they just want to eat lotus all the time. And if this sounds familiar, it absolutely should. This is like the early Greek conception of what drug addiction looks like. This is the heroin addict or more generously the pot eater. Um, these are people who have disengaged from the world but notice what the lotus isle is related to for tolkien bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss this temptation this drug addiction this complete ignorance of the world around us is not something caused by chemicals it's caused by economics for swearing souls to gain a circe kiss Circe is this really attractive goddess who lives in one of the islands that Odysseus has to travel through. She is super tempting. 
all of the people who come to her house, they drink her food and they eat what she, or they eat her food, they drink what she has to drink, and they are turned into pigs. They are trapped there, and they too forget about home. In fact, that's stressed in both of those passages. What Tolkien is saying is we are being told to forget about the night, to ignore the fact that the world is dark. And that is bad. They, we are being told to flee to organized delight, to come to parties, to go and have fun, to go to concerts, to forget about the world and to escape it all and to ignore it. And don't worry about it because what you will have is economic bliss, which will make you forget about all your problems and all the things you need to do. As long as you are wealthy enough, as long as you got that white picket fence and your two and a half kids and your dog and your cat, who cares about what the rest of the world is doing? And then we forswear souls to gain a Circe kiss. We want that sexual enticement. We want those promises of food and drink. But, and Tolkien stresses this, it is counterfeit. It is machine-produced, bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. This is not what poets and writers and myth-makers do. By contrast, they are blessed here. Blessed are the legend-makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not they who have forgot the night. It is not they who bid us flee to organize the light. It is not they who bid us hang out in lotus isles of economic bliss. It is not they who tell us to forswear our souls to gain a Circe kiss. It is not they who are promising these counterfeited goods, these machine-produced pleasures. And in fact, the ones that are, the people who are saying you can find fulfillment in money, in power, in sex, in pleasure that makes you ignore the rest of the world, those people are not just seducing you, they are themselves twice seduced. They have forgotten their actual purpose, what the legend makers and the bards have been telling them for ages. They have forgotten their role in creation, their dominant position, the fact that they can create the world in their own image. They have given it up and instead are just telling you to give it up as well because we got money and we got sex and we got power and we got all of this crap, which is ultimately worthless. Instead, the dreamers, the hopers, the myth-makers, they saw isles afar and ones more fair than anything that our crude economic systems can promise. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat. They know how shitty the world is, and they tell us to fight. They tell us not to give up, not to just wallow in our little bubble of economic happiness, but actually to stand up and fight. And they talk about not an acceptance, but a victory. Winning this situation. Overcoming all these obstacles and all these evils, these things that we think are inevitable, these things that we're trying to like run away from because we don't think we can beat them. They're saying, no, we can fight and we can win, but you have to stand up and you have to do it. 
Off to victory have turned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. Through their fictions, through their hopes, through their myths, they encourage us to be better than what we are. They say, yes, the world sucks. Now let's beat this thing. Not just wallow in it. The promises of those other people, the promises of the counterfeit, machine-made, Circe kisses and Lotus Isles, these are just palliatives. They just make you complacent, Tolkien is saying. Instead, dream, hope, ally yourself to something mad and fictional, because that's the way that the world changes, not through these stupid, crappy, non-goods that we're being promised by rich people these days. I would that I might with the minstrels sing and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep that cut their slender planks on mountains steep and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest, for some have passed beyond the fabled west. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold, impure and scanty, yet they loyally bring to mint an image blurred of distant king, or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. By contrast to the shit that people are peddling in the guise of happiness, he is saying, I will sing. I do not settle for this garbage that you are passing off as goods. I will sing, I will stand with the minstrels, the storytellers, the myth-makers, the bards, and the singers, and the hopers, and the dreamers. Because that is in, in itself its own reward, better than anything that this world can offer me. I will claim my dominion, and be creative, and accept my responsibility as a creator. I will shape the world in my image, and that is way better than anything that you can offer me. But more than that, some have passed beyond the fabled west. Some have succeeded. I believe not just that these creators are creating for their own sake, making something good, and that that good thing is itself just good and better than what you have to offer, but that some are saved. That some have escaped this ugly, disgusting world and have actually gone beyond the borders into a new and true bliss. Which is, again, his understanding of heaven, his understanding of salvation. But more importantly, even if you are not one of those, even if you can't be one of those, I would, with the beleaguered fools, be told. I would rather keep company with the idiots that keep an inner fastness where their gold, impure and scanty, is loyally brought to mint in image blurred of distant kings. I would rather stand with the crappy singers, the ones who did not endure over thousands of years, the ones who did not successfully achieve immortality through the virtues of their song. I would rather sit with the crappy artists who at the very least are bringing their little bit, their crappy, impure, scanty gold loyally to celebrate this king, the blurred, distant king. Tolkien will celebrate God and celebrate Christ in whatever pithy way he can because that is itself a much greater reward than what the world itself is offering. Even if he cannot achieve the immortality of a Dante or a Milton or a Homer or a Hesiod or any of the great writers who have brought you know, their great creative 
talents to bear on these important subjects. Even the ones who, you know, we don't read in this class who have survived, Tolkien would rather spend his time with the ones we forgot who did their best than the people who gave up and who sold out, who gave up their creative power in favor of sitting where they are and accepting what other people had given to them. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient. Before them gapes the dark abyss to where their progress tends, if by God's mercy progress ever ends, and does not ceaselessly revolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable, where no part this little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown nor cast my own small golden scepter down. When he says I will not walk with your progressive apes, he is rejecting the theory of evolution. He is saying straight out, that's a crappy myth, and I don't buy it. Because my myths are way better. My myths promise way more. My myths are truer than yours even if you have facts and science on your side. Because your theory of evolution, your theory of progress, your theory of scientific advancement bringing the human race forward, what has it gotten us? Before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, this is in the age of nuclear annihilation, guys. Tolkien walked through the war of in World War I. He saw mustard gas, he saw machine guns, he saw technology and science being employed to completely despicable ends. And then he lived to see the atom bomb detonated and he said, we are screwed. This is what science offers us. Destruction. Self-destruction. Our greed, our scientific aspirations, what is it truly offering? Death. And that's the best solution. If by God's mercy progress ever ends, if we do destroy ourselves, that is better than letting us ceaselessly resolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. Better to die in nuclear fire than to keep on pursuing greed and pursuing worldly goods and wealth and all of this garbage forever and ever without any end. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I refuse your world of factories instead of art, your world of science instead of true creation, your world of technological development for a profit rather than artistic development for the sake of one's own pride, honor, and well-being. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. I retain the dominion. I retain my ability to recreate the world in my image, to understand it however I want, rather than submit to your blunt, materialistic, naturalistic, scientific perspective. In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the capital T true. Then, looking on the blessed land, we'll see that all is as it is, and yet may free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys garden nor gardener, children not their toys. Evil it will not see, 
For evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure they still will make, not been dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall, there each shall choose forever from the all. This is Tolkien's vision of heaven. In paradise, he will still create, but there won't be evil. They will still make myths. They will still recombine the elements that God has created for them, but they will not falter. They will not make mistakes. They will not tell lies. They will not perpetuate evil. Just like Plato stressed with Homer and Hesiod telling evil stories, Tolkien is saying there are evil myths. But when the day comes, we won't be telling those myths anymore. But we will still be telling myths. In paradise they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. But be sure they still will make, not been dead. We will, if anything, have more responsibility to create, to subcreate, to continually refract that one white light. That's always been our job. That's what it means to be human. And I realize we have spent literally an hour and 15 minutes talking about this poem and we may not have made more heads or tails as to why I included in this curriculum. So let me be very clear here. As much as I wanna talk about how myths are interpreted and how they're read and how a culture sees it and how a culture understands it, I want underlying every single one of those conversations for you to remember that we're also making the world. Myth-making is two parts. It is the reading of myth and the interpretation of myth and the understanding of myth. It is also the making of it. It is giving meaning to the world. And every writer we read, every person who documents these myths, every person who retells a myth, every person who reframes or recharacterizes or who comes up with their own like Tolkien does, they are in some way doing something holy, like sacred. Tolkien saw his business of writing the Lord of the Rings as a holy act, a way of representing dimly and poorly and crappily his king. This was his Christian responsibility. It is how he worshiped God. That's what all of the myth makers in ancient Greece and Rome did as well. They told these stories because it was sacred, because they saw the fire burning at the beginning of the world and they said, I am going to capture that as best as I can so that it will always be in full view of us. We read myths to understand them. We write myths to participate in whatever greatness this human race is capable of doing. To participate in the grand traditions, the civilization, the culture, to, to direct the course of history, to make the world a better place somehow or another. And the writers we run into know that. They are also trying to do that. 
The people who make your movies that you like to watch, they think they're making the world a better place. The people who are writing the books that we read in this class, or even the ones who are just compiling the stories that have already been written, they think they are making the world a better place. And you, if you sit down and write a short story or a myth or anything, if you try and capture the world in your own way, keep that in mind, you too are doing something holy, something sacred, something moving the race forward moving our species toward whatever mysterious goal that may be, even if it's imaginary, even if it's bullshit. It's not lying. It's much closer to that capital P progress that Tolkien himself was rather skeptical of. Science does a lot of great things for us. I do not want to denounce it. Tolkien's allergy to science stops with me. But what it will not solve for us is it will not make us better people. Science can help us. Science can extend our lives. Science can give us more wealth. Science can make the world a better place to live in. But it cannot make us better at living in it. That's what myth is for. That's what the humanities are for. And it's not something science can fix either. Like, I don't... I very much doubt that we are ever going to get to the point where we can scientifically program ourselves to be better human beings. And if we do, God help us, because now we're talking about Brave New World. And that, as I recall, was a dystopian novel, as much as some people are kind of cool with living there. What Tolkien is talking about is a zero-sacrifice acceptance of what we are as human beings. Don't lose sight of that. What all of our writers are doing what all of these myths are intended to do by their writers is express and improve humanity to show our mark on the world and also to make that world to mark it in its own way and make it better it's not escapism it's not evasion it's not disregarding the evils of the world it's something way more profound than that. It's an acknowledgement and an improvement. It is both true in the sense of rea real, matching reality, and it is also better than true. It is making the world conform to what we want it to be. All right. So keep that in mind as we read our myths going forward, especially in the coming weeks. Next week, our focus is going to be on creation myths. We're going to spend two whole weeks on creation myths. So for our next session, for our next lecture, be sure to read both Hesiod, um, his cosmogony, and the other creation myths that I've got set up there. I think I've got like the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite as well. Um, be sure to read both of those. We will talk about them extensively in the next lecture. Um, good luck, and good luck with your artistic endeavors.